Well, this morning, um, I've entitled the message, um, The New Optimists. And if you've taken a peek yet this morning at the text, Psalm 22, at least the first part of it, might not lend itself to something that you would think would be called The New Optimists. Um, But I want to follow through. I want to take a moment to look at Psalm 22. But before we get there, um, I want to, to think of a phrase that, that maybe some of you might remember. And maybe you can remember the days where you, you heard this on TV, and it was, are you better off than you were four years ago? Anybody? Yeah? Anybody know who said that one? It was Reagan in 19, the 1980 election, right? That was one of his big things he ran on. Are, were you, are you better off than you were four years ago? Um, and it got him elected, didn't it, right? Um, because a lot of people felt like, no, no, they weren't. And I, and I, I feel like we're, we're getting that kind of current, again, in our culture, that um, it feels like there's this overwhelming story in our culture that things are getting worse, right? That, that's, that's the cultural narrative that we're living in today. But I want to push back against that today. I don't necessarily buy the story that, that things are getting worse. I don't, now, it doesn't mean bad things aren't happening. It doesn't mean there aren't hardships going on, that there aren't struggles. But I do want to push back on the fact that it's all getting worse, that the net sum today is worse than it was yesterday, is worse than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Because, one, I think the data is on my side. All right? So, you know, I wouldn't make a claim like this without statistics, right? Because that's what I just love to point to. Um, but I found this awesome website this week. It's called ourworldanddata.org. So I pulled some numbers from there. Um, just some key indicators to, to hopefully convince you that I don't think we're, we're worse off today than we were 5, 10, 15 years ago. For instance, um, now I'm taking a long view of things, okay? So let's think about life expectancy. Life expectancy has doubled in the last 100 years, and that's worldwide, okay? So worldwide, that's including every, every person, every nation, um, whether they're part of the developed world or the developing world. Um, worldwide life expectancy has doubled in the last 100 years, and it's just shy of 70. So that's worldwide life expectancy. And today, taking a longer view, today the worst countries in the world with the worst life expectancy have a better life expectancy than the best countries in 1800. So let that one sink in a little bit, all right? Um, Homicides and violent crimes have been falling over time. At this point in human history, you were at the the least likely point in human history to die because of violence, even though it might not feel like that. Um, But as a percentage of the population, as a percentage of people that have passed away in the world, no fewer were at the lowest point as a percentage of deaths of homicides and violent crimes. Extreme poverty, for the first time in 2016, fell below 10% of the world. Less than 10% of the world was living in extreme poverty for the first time ever in 2016. Um, world undernourishment, which is just a way, a statistics way of measuring world hunger, right? Putting an actual statistic on that. Um, and 18.6% of the world was undernourished in 91. But in 2015, it was just 10.8%. World hunger is almost half what it was just 20 years ago. 
Um, as far as the environment's concerned, carbon emissions have failed to go up for the third year in a row. So we're starting to turn a corner there as well. All of that to say, we might go through hard times, there might be dips, there might be some days that are worse than others, but on the whole, things are better off today than they were 5, 10, 15, 20, 100 years ago. So I don't think we can give into this, this narrative of fear, is essentially what we're thinking about and talking about. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. was famous for the phrase, he said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I think that's what we're seeing. And, and, I, and, I, and I know Martin Luther King Jr. said it because he knows who holds the world, who holds the universe in his hands. And it's a God of justice. And that's why this whole thing is headed somewhere. So today's text, Psalm 22, deals with this issue. Deals with this idea of are we dealing with, what are we, how do we think, how do we believe about the world around us and where things are going. And so Psalm 22, if you look at the first verse, is one that I'm sure a lot of us will, will recognize. And it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said those words from the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so for the first 20 some odd verses of this text, it is dark, it is depressed, and it is more of why have you forsaken me? We're talking about things like this. <laughs> I love verse six, but I am a worm, not a man. Um, another verse says, the dogs, the wild dogs and the jackals, they surround me, right? This is a, a psalm writer who is in trouble. This is a psalm writer who, I think for those first 20 verses, would definitely say, I'm in a worse spot. I am worse off than I was four years ago, right? This is a, a man who is down on his luck, who has hit rock bottom, and is asking God, why in the world has all of this happened? But then in verse 21, we start to see it turn around. In verse 21, something happens. We don't know what. We just know it's, it's a deliverance of some sort. Because after 20 verses of woe is me, right, it starts to turn around. And he starts to praise that God that he said in verse 1 had forsaken him. He starts to offer a sacrifice of praise. And so that's where we come in with the last third of this psalm. In verse 25, we see things have turned around. I told Amanda it's going to be hard. i got to hold my Bible in one hand and a mic in the other. I can't, I can't make all my motions. I realize how much I talk with my hands. And so I feel like I'm, you're only getting half the sermon this morning because, you know, my hands are stuck. Um, but I want to look at verse 25, 25 through 31. This is what it says in the, in the praise part of this psalm. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied, and those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. For posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Now that is a world away from my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So something's happened. He's experienced a redemption. And it's a redemption so great, so deep, so all-encompassing that he has to share it, that he, he can't not stand up and worship God 
in the presence of the great assembly, right? And we know that. We've experienced those times where we've stood up and we've had to praise God in the middle of a worship service, or we've had to share a testimony of something that God has done for us. And what I love about them in this time as part of their church service, their temple service, right, is it includes a barbecue, all right? Because um, with the testimony, with a thanksgiving, it, there's a thanksgiving offering, which meant they brought in one of their animals, they sacrificed it, they cooked it up, and they shared it together, not just with um, the assembly, but also with the pastor slash priest, all right? Um, so everybody gets to eat, and that's, that's where that verse comes from, 26. The poor will eat and be satisfied. He's so happy. He's brought in so much of a, of a Thanksgiving sacrifice that there's so much to go around. Everybody in the temple where the poor hang out and ask for alms, everybody in the temple gets to eat and not just eat a little bit, right? We're not talking about what we do in communion where everybody just gets a little bit. We're talking about eating and being full and being satisfied. That's how much thanks this psalm writer has to give. And so that's what he does. Um, and so he, he even goes on to say that this is something that will go on and will carry on to generation, to generation, to generation. Nations, um, children yet unborn will hear of this. That's how big it is. That's how much of, a, of an issue that it is. And so this is the psalm, going back to what Jesus said. Jesus quoted verse 1 on the cross. And so sometimes it, it's easy for us to think about Jesus on the cross as he's nearing his death. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we, we focus on the first half of this psalm, not the last part, not the last half. Here's the issue with that. Back then, most everybody, most good Jews, had a lot of the Old Testament memorized. And by quoting the beginning of a chapter, or quoting especially the beginning of a psalm, you were invoking, you were remembering the entire chapter, or the entire psalm. So for instance, if I were to say, well, God so loved the world, Boom, you're all thinking it, right? You're all finishing it. You know that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, right? Y'all get there. When I'll, but all I have to say is, for God so loved the world, and you know what I'm saying, right? Or I could say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? You're, you're all there. You're all making that journey, even though I'm only saying half of it, right? Or I could say, you know, something I always think of like John 1, right? In the beginning was the word. And yeah, there you go. See, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus saying just the first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People would have known, oh, that's Psalm 22. And they probably would have been like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, until it starts to sink in. But wait a minute. That psalm ends with redemption. That psalm ends on a good note. And he's saying that while he's dying? See, Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew that redemption was coming, that while in the midst of dying, of breathing his last breath, he knew that resurrection and new life was coming. And so that's why he quotes Psalm 22. Because it's something that even the psalm writer understands. And all of this, the dogs that surround him, the worm that he is, because he's not a man, what does he still say throughout all of it? My God. My God. In the midst of all that hard times, all those hard times, all the, the struggles, all the issues, it's still my God. He hasn't given up faith. Even though he might feel abandoned, even though he's going through a, a very much a dark night of the soul, he hasn't given up because it's my God, 
my God, why have you forsaken me? My God has saved my people in the past. Why won't he save me now? My God is who he's crying out to. And so even the psalm writer, before verse 21, verse 25, even he anticipates the redemption. And so Jesus quotes this psalm from the cross because he knows redemption is coming. So going along with this, um, part of what makes the difference between verses 1 through 20 and 21 through 31 is the issue of perspective. It's an issue of fear. And um, I think that the psalm writer is picking up on something that is very much so. I can't do it. I need a hand. <coughs> um, part of what the psalm writer is coming up with, what he's pushing up against, is something that all human beings experience. And that's the fact that fear or the negative emotions have a very strong place in our lives. Um, one writer I read this week, he put it, and I loved it, it was, Fear is like Velcro, and the goodness, the, the bad things are like Velcro, but the good things are like Teflon, right? It's the good things, you can hear all the good things in the world. You can hear 99 good things, and they're going to slide right off you when you hear that one bad one, and that's the one that sticks with you. That's the one you, you play over and over again in your head at night. That's how you can have a wonderful, awesome day. Everything can go your way except for that one thing and that one thing. That's what you're thinking about at the end of the day or at the end of the week. When your mind um, soaks up those bad things and they, they stick like Velcro, and there's actually a reason for this. There, there's actually a medical, a neurological reason for this. And namely, it's because it kept your ancestors alive. Okay? That, that fear, that focus on the negative, that kept your ancestors alive. Because once upon a time, we're talking about cavemen here, it only took one mistake to be lunch. Okay? And so you, you, you naturally, you feared things. Because here's the issue. Imagine you're in the tall grass, right? You're out on the plain, you're out on the field, and then the grass starts moving. What is it, right? When you're living in a place of fear, when you're living from a place of negativity, I'm just going to assume that's a saber-toothed tiger, and I'm going to go the other way, right? Because what's the worst that can happen? I'm wrong, and I might miss out on a good meal. If I think the other way and I think, oh, it might be a good meal out there, I might become the meal if I'm wrong, <laughs> right? And so we, we've learned to focus over generations and generations and generations. We focus on the bad things because we want to fix them, because they keep us alive, because that's something we can improve on. And so our, our brains have been shaped over generations, over hundreds and thousands of years to focus on the bad, to focus on the fear, to focus on what might go wrong. And so it's only natural that here we are today um, in a world that we don't really have to worry about being any tiger's lunch. I, at least I didn't have to this week, okay? Um, our brain is still focusing on that negative. It's still looking. It's still fearful. And our world picks up on that. And our world knows that. That's why it's the negative Facebook ads that go around like a virus. That's why it's the negative videos online that get the most shares. That's why the Facebook, the YouTube, or the news, the algorithms always carry what? The bad news up to the top, right? What do you never hear on the news? A single mother paid all of her bills today. You never hear that, right? Um, and if you're lucky, on a, on a slow news day, you might get one nice fluff piece at the end that'll make you feel warm and fuzzy assuming there wasn't too much bloodshed, assuming there wasn't too much of an economic crisis, 
assuming there wasn't enough, um, you know, violence in the world that day, that they had to fill some time at the end. And that's when you got some good news. See, our, our whole culture has picked up on this issue of fear, and fear sells. It sells newspapers, it sells advertising, fear sells. And in the like, world we live in, it's, the, it's what sells is what goes, it's what gets made. But the psalmist knew, in the midst of all that fear, God could and did deliver him from it. And so that's what we see in the life of Christ, is that he doesn't fear it, and he doesn't play by their games. He instead submits to the violence and comes out the other side, a resurrected being with new life, resurrection life, a life of love, as we read from John and, and the, the Gospel of John and the letters of John. It's a life of love, not a life of fear. Elsewhere it says perfect love drives out fear. There's no room for fear if you know God. And so it's, it's this space of love that drives out that fear. And so um, there's this excellent story I came across, one last story to tell before I wrap up. Um, and, it, and it comes from the rabbis. Um, it's this piece of, uh, of midrash. And midrash is just a, a Jewish way of saying commentary or stories about scripture. And so there's this story that goes along with Genesis. It goes along with the creation narrative. And the rabbis, what they said, um, that when the, when the trees were already made and when God made iron, when the things that could be turned into axes, when God made iron, the trees trembled. And they, they were afraid because they knew that the axe had the power to destroy them. That with iron being there, with iron being present in the world, their existence was threatened. But God says to the trees, why do you worry and why do you fear? Because unless you are joined to it, unless the axe has, an hand, has a handle of wood, it's useless and it can't hurt you. And so the lesson that we can draw from that is that we have to give in to fear. We have to let ourselves be overcome with fear. We have to give ourselves to it for it to have power in our lives. And so the question for us, the choice for us today is, are we going to live from a place of fear? Are we going to give that axe head the handle it needs in order to hurt us? Or are we going to choose to believe in Christ? Are we going to choose to believe in God's love in a better way? Because we know that God holds the universe. God's the one in control. We've, we've, you know, I've always heard what preachers say, we've read the back of the book and we know who wins, right? Um, so we know where the whole thing's going. We know how it all turns out. So we don't need that fear. We don't need to give that axe head a handle. Instead, we need to live from a place of love. And so that's my challenge for you this week, is as you encounter it, you go back to your room right now and you turn on the news, boom, there will be fear. You will encounter fear this week. So when you encounter fear, will you, will you give it the handle? Or instead, will you reject it and instead choose to trust in God and his love? Let us pray together. Father, we come to you today asking for your help, asking for your spirit, your spirit of love to work in us because we need help. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it is our inclination to, to give fear a handle. Sometimes it's just so hard to resist. 
but we know that by the power of your spirit, we can reject that. That we can choose to trust in you and where you have this whole thing headed. That it's headed for a place of love, it's headed for a place of peace, a place where your justice rules perfectly, and that that is nothing but good news. So when we bump up against fear this week, may we leave it where it is. May we not buy into the game. May we not buy whatever it is that fear is selling, and instead, may we trust in you and your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. Shape us and inform us in the way of Christ this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Go in grace and peace.